This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. You're listening to 3CR, and I am Kurt Johnson. I hope that you are all safe and healthy this week. I've been thinking a lot about the panic surrounding the coronavirus and how it spreads. Panic, that is. Panic is almost universally considered a negative thing. You only have to walk into Coles and go into the canned woods or pasta aisles see the bare shells to understand that deep within our psyches lies the reptilian brain ready to reactivate in times of high stress. But I believe that with this panic can come a sense of clarity. A time when all the unnecessary external worries fall away is trivial. I'm hoping that such clarity will arrive to humans as a I'm hoping the current pandemic will loosen our reliance on consumerism and teach us that the economic system under which we live is not the master of nature, but very much subservient to it. I'm hoping that it will teach us to cooperate and rediscover community and value beyond the monetary. I'm hoping that it will make us think about where our food comes from and that some members of our society are more vulnerable than others. Yes, the pandemic is a scourge, but it's also an opportunity to reevaluate our priorities and consider our position relative to nature. And on that note, we have an eclectic show for you today. A few weeks ago, I went to Fiji where I visited villages and looked at the traditional way that they have managing their reef. It has brought resilience back to the reefs and marine life after the colonial mode of exploitation left barren in the 90s. The man who was there was Austin Bowden Kirby. Austin was there the moment a valuable piece of Indigenous knowledge was rediscovered, one that brought the health back to the reefs. Austin is also called the Coral Gardener and is head of an ambitious program to reseed reefs with coral grown in shallow nurseries be a way of saving reefs worldwide that are under tremendous stress thanks to climate change. But first up and closer to home we will be talking to Australian journalist Paddy Manning about his new book Inside the Greens. Take it away Paddy. Paddy Manning is a professional journalist. He's worked for Crikey, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Financial Review and Four Corners among many other outlets. One of his books is called What the Frack? Everything you need to know about um, coal seam gas. So I think you can see the sort of interests he has. And his new book is called Body Count, about deaths connected to climate disruption. I heard him speak at the National Climate Emergency Summit in between the January bushfire emergency and the present pandemic emergency. (laughs) And this is time for a sane and well-connected media, I think, and that's what I want to talk with him about. So how are you feeling about all this, Paddy? Well, it is um, a very different proposition to be putting out a book about um, climate change and the and the kind of death toll that it's taken in Australia in the middle of a pandemic that you never know could um, kill tens, hundreds of thousands of people. So uh, it has, you know, um, it feels a little bit different now. Uh, but it is still an important story. And, uh, of course, the death count, uh, the death toll that climate change is, is likely to take, according to, um, you know, the World Health Organization, for example, is you know, we're going to rise to something like 250,000 people a year by the middle of the century. So 
um, there's no question that it's a, a very serious um, health emergency in its own right. It's just at the moment we're all completely, um, you know, distracted and focused on, um, you know, COVID-19. Yeah, well, I think it's a good distraction because I've, we've been talking about emergency for a long time and what would emergency really mean, but now we're getting a practice. You know, we've been complacent for a long time. We haven't been through war in this country, and I feel this is a practice run for emergency measures and people you know, working out other ways to deal with life and it may in fact bring about some of the behaviour change that we really need for climate action. That's, you know, I, I think there's something in here that's kind of like a, it's the time is right for this emergency and, and the climate emergency doesn't go, shouldn't go off stage because of that. Um, yeah, well, I think that there is an element of um, truth there that, you know, like every crisis is an opportunity and there is, you know, there were calls last week, for example, by Ross Garneau, you know, um, who's, who's just written his book Superpower, just talking about, well, now is the time, for example, if we're going to be doing a stimulus package in response to, um, you know, coronavirus, um, the pandemic, then what we should be doing is, um, you know, taking the opportunity um, to... Um, you know, do I suppose the green, um, you know, stimulus package? Yeah. And there were very similar calls at the time of the financial crisis, uh, and some countries did that. We didn't. Yeah. Um, we had pink bats, but yeah. you know, um, Korea, for example, you know, uh, or, or China. China invested in fast rail. Korea, I think, invested in uh, electric cars and you know a whole bunch of other. You know, so um, so um, yeah. But perhaps there's an opportunity um, for Australia um, here. And I think that the Greens are talking about that as well as part of their Green New Deal kind of push. Yeah, and um, I think so that's an opportunity also for journalists because, see, that story of South Korea, I have read about that, but I think that hasn't been front of mind for people in Australia. We think, oh, China, oh, South Korea, you know, and we never hear of the, the lead they're taking on things like that. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, at the moment what we're seeing is um, behaviour change that's not, uh, encouraging at all, you know, you sort of every um, person for themselves down at the supermarket, and that's exactly the opposite of the kind of community, um, you know, solidarity that we need, and and which we saw during the bushfire. So, yeah. um, you know, in some ways, it's it's encouraging and discouraging at the same time, and it's also downright frightening uh, because, you know. Um, uh, we still are very, um, it's very unclear whether Australia will pull through this well or badly. Yes, and I also worry about, because you've published that book called What the Frack, and so you know about the coal seam gas, apparently in, in Victoria this morning, we've, we're in a state of emergency here, and the, they've just, I think, as a Trojan horse, you know, under the emergency thing, they've brought out this news that they're going to start fracking, they're breaking through the moratorium on fracking for gas on land here. So, no, that's not what they've done. They oh. haven't. They've maintained a monitor. They're, they're going to ban fracking, but they've allowed um, for uh, the lifting of a moratorium on conventional gas um, oh. exploration onshore. So what that means is, you know, um, you don't use fracking. You don't use any of the um, unconventional oh, yeah. um, extraction techniques that have become you know, part of the, um, you know, shale and um, coal seam gas boom. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, got, I did get that wrong, but I I think the people who've wanted that moratorium don't want any more gas. We don't want any gas, oil or uh, coal. That's still gas, and that's, I feel, part of, oh, we're having an emergency and we can be distracted by that and not notice that this will 
um, you know, no one will be able to protest about it, at least mm. in the streets. Mm. Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to talk about that, but seeing as your book was, I thought, yeah, that that's, oh, it, it's it's a mixed blessing, whatever happens, and, and it could be very frightening, as you say, but let's keep calm. <laughs> your book, yeah. um, Body Count, shows how the climate crisis is now a health emergency, and before the coronavirus, we weren't very aware, I don't think, of that health emergency. And I want to know, what put you on the trail of all those people who have, as you said, paid the ultimate price for our inaction? Uh, well, it was actually an idea that came to me um, kind of two or three years ago, um, which was that, um, you know, I mean, it's commonly in, in, I suppose, climate kind of policy um, makers, um, you know, talk about uh, the fact that, you know, to really cut through the climate debate, people are, people are kind of bored of it uh, in some ways and um, and, they, and it gets lost very often in, um, you know, parts per million and percentage, you know, yeah. target figures for emissions reduction and, oh, yes. you know, um, and a whole bunch of numbers, the kilowatts and the megawatts of oh, the energy yeah. debate and people get lost and confused. How many degrees is the temperature rising, is mm. it, you know? Um, so uh, all of those facts and figures, I think, it, it can be confusing to people. And um, and yet uh, it seemed to me that what does have power is the real um, stories of the human impact that um, climate change is, is undoubtedly already having. And, you know, at the most um, acute, I suppose, those stories relate to the death of people in, you know, um, what are called natural disasters. I, I like to call them unnatural disasters because, you know, um, they're fueled by global warming. Uh, they're either made more intense or severe or they're made more likely or more frequent by global warming. And, um, you know, you start with events. I just started with a crude list um, that that begins um, with the Canberra bushfires in 2003, which, you know, having spoken to a whole bunch of experts, um, really were something new at that time. That's a million-hectare um, fire that was started by dry lightning and that just hadn't happened before and that's the first story that I start to explore mm. and I just went you know it was actually mid last year that I got underway on this book and I started to then um, try and ring people who'd lost you know in some of these cases the names are published um, and um, in some of the cases like heat or with smoke or you know suicide the names aren't published but yeah I just started to try and make contact with people um, and um, and see whether they would talk to me. And, of course, I had no idea whether they would talk to me. Uh, yeah. But um, I, yeah, consulted with scientists about, well, what was a working list of, you know, some of these events that um, really have been, um, you know, both um, tragic in terms of the loss of life, but also, um, but also scientifically, um, you know, made more likely or more severe by um, global warming. And, yeah, I start with that with those fires, of course, um, coming through to Black Saturday, yeah. um, and the, mo- and the, the more stories? recent fires over summer. Yeah, tell Sorry? us one. Of, tell us one of the studies. I know you were travelling all around the place to meet people, and these aren't necessarily climate activists, or well, certainly not, but but they have been caught caught by these climate events. So tell us one of the stories that you. Yes, well, one of the stories was um, was uh, the story of Alison Tenner who died um, in her home in 
the Canberra bushfires in a home in Duffy when those fires ripped through the western suburbs of Canberra in January 2003. And um, and I interviewed her husband, uh, David, who um, was a Air Force um worked for the Air Force, yeah. uh, I think, um, you know, in the maintenance uh, area. And um, and he was stationed up at um, Richmond that day, the Richmond Air Force Base, you know, just west of Sydney. Uh, and, you know, that was an example of a, t- of a fire that was behaving in a way that, um, you know, really did take authorities kind of off guard, really did court the ATT. Um, uh, authorities off guard and so the public warning system was not um, up to scratch you know there was a special um, inquiry afterwards which which found that you know the residents weren't weren't given adequate warnings certainly the ACT um, fire authorities uh, tried to kind of suppress how serious the situation was uh, you know, because they had an experience where basically over 50 years, um, you know, they hadn't had a loss of life in Canberra in bushfire. So, so, um, so, yeah, and Alison died tragically that day, um, taking refuge in her bath because, because, you know, she wasn't sure whether to stay or go. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a similar situation happened to a lot of people in their homes in Black Saturday um, six years later. Um, you know, the stay-or-go policy, the warning systems weren't up to scratch again. Uh, they've been improved in the wake of Black Saturday, of course, because 173 people died there. Um, but, yeah, Alison's story was was uh, it was a sad, uh, painful story uh, to write about and to talk, I mean, in particular, it's painful for David still to talk about, even mm-hmm. though it's you know, um, 17 years ago, and uh, and he told me that it's really only in the last, you know, few years that he's been able to talk about it with anyone at all. Um, and, you know, and then we did get to talking about climate change, and, you know, and he took me around the memorial to the, uh, the Canberra bushfire victims and, um, you know, showed me where his old house was and, uh, you know, and, and therefore where he, you know... Um, former wife died and, and, you know, the mother of his um, kids. So, you know, it's it was terribly sad. Um, and, yeah, um, David's like many people, I think, sitting back, um, you know, not one to jump at. You know, he's not, uh, he's certainly no radical greenie. He's not one to jump at, you know, exaggerated claims about climate change or anything like that. But he is worried about it and uh, he thinks we should be doing more. And so, you know, that's just that's just one out of, you know, like, 15 different case studies that I, um, you know, uh, was able, I'm able to tell yeah. in the in the book, and I'll get a whole. You know, I expected that most people who have, you know, who had suffered such a loss in in a, you know an event that was linked to climate change, might might you know all be sort of of a mind. You know that we we need to do more. Well, that's not the case at all. Some of them are confused about um, whether it's linked to climate change or not. Some of them are actually don't believe that climate change is happening or that, you know, it's being caused by emissions. Yeah. Uh, So, you know. This is what I want to know. The public mind, you know, who forms the public mind? There's a lot of um, gatekeepers of what goes into our mind, but there's a lot that's online that I wouldn't, for example, know at all how the public mind is being formed. But this inaction, you said, you know, that their deaths were um, the ultimate price for our inaction. And some of us do know about the connection between the fossil fuels and the 
various um, greenhouse gas causing agents in our society that we have to get a grip on, change, transform. There's, it's probably a small group of people still who know that deeply and they can't you know, sleep at night for thinking about it. But I want to know how parts of the media are promoting inaction, that feeling that you can't do anything. Australia's only 1.7% of world emissions. We can't do anything. Poor little Australia. That story, that, that lie to me that comes out all the time out of the media, how, how, how does that work? Uh, well, I think it's, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different, um, you know, pressures on the media. One is commercial, uh, you know, that the, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry is a powerful industry and, and, um, it's not so much that they advertise, um, you know, and influence the commercial media that way, but they do have a huge influence over government and, they do, um, you know, obviously through donations and, you know, what's called the revolving door, have a lot of influence uh, over the political parties themselves. Uh, and so I think there's a vested interest um, issue there that is that puts pressure on the media directly and indirectly um, to, you know, kind of highlight the costs of action um, more than inaction and um and you know so doubt about um you know the 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 science of climate change um but i also think that you know the media tends to uh you know there's well established kind of uh, the phenomenon of false balance you know the yeah. there's an easy strategy for journalists to you know put two people who disagree up against each other and say we're leaving it up to the mm-hmm. um you know reader to decide i think too many um you know, too many, too many times that's been the that's been the nature of our reporting on climate change for a, for a long time, uh, which has given you know a sort of false impression that there's uh, really a debate about the science when there isn't. Um, I think that uh, yeah, the you know what I I don't really cover the way the media has um, has kind of reported climate change in the book, but what I do see in the book is the consequences of this kind of hopeless failure to um, communicate the gravity of the climate challenge, you know, mm. and to communicate the risks um, that we're facing. And and the consequence of it is, you know, uh, just confusion yeah. in, in amongst even people who have got a huge stake in the debate, um, you know, whether they know it or not. Uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion out there. Mm. And, uh, and so... I think, you know, partly I came to the conclusion that it's ignorance killing us um, as much as it is climate change, you know. Oh, it is. Uh, really, we've spent 30 years debating it and we, yeah. and we could have simply um, acted. I agree. And ignorance and sort of disinformation because I, I, I took a lot of... I was very involved um, during the New Year's bushfires, but I was aware and I was covering the ones up in New South Wales before that in November, but... But um, I was horrified about about the 6th of January when the probably everyone went back to work. The Murdoch media went wild, painting, uh, pointing out arsonists and greenies, um, c- accusing them. You know, they were the it was the blame on them that they placed. And there were mega bushfires, and everybody says, well, people were saying this is not at all. This is not at all the cause. But uh, they turned. I think they turned people's gaze away from the new coal mines, the King's Ransom in Gas that's about to be, you know, piped out of the Northern Territory. And business wants 
exploit all of that. And so I feel the Murdoch media just did something so, to me, I've always worried about it, but this is such a visible case of when the community had been really heroically pulling together in every way. I could tell from my family and people who told me, but they just started blaming, blaming arsonists, blaming greenies, dividing us again. And I want to know, how do you think they get away with such cheap tricks? Oh, well, because I suppose um, there's an audience for it. You know, people are not... um, I mean, it's a a kind of, you know, it's a broad question. We can talk for ages about what the failings of the media. But uh, but I haven't, you know, I'm trying to correct it here. I'm trying to at least... um, through the true stories of people that I've spoken to who are not, um, you know, uh, not climate advocates, uh, you know, but are, you know, the real victims of of warming we've seen today, which has had consequences that are only, a, you know, just a taste of what is likely if, you know, the warming continues, um, you know, throughout this century. Uh, this, you know, the the deaths by fire and flash flooding and, you know, heat and smoke and, um, you know, even Melbourne's, you know, um, thunderstorm asthma outbreak in 2016, you know, these are all just clear pointers to the risks we're taking. Mm. And uh, and so, yeah, as much as I possibly can, I've, I've tried uh, both to be as scientifically rigorous as possible here uh, by, you know, um, consulting informally with, you know, health and climate experts um, over the stories that I have, um, you know, uh, got, uh, but also be, and also be uh, faithful to the people who I interviewed who have, you know, generously shared their stories with me of their family um, or loved ones that they've, you know, lost and uh, and I hope that at least the book will, um, you know, provoke a bit of debate uh, and and um, and make people think about just how serious, you know, the health risks of global warming are. Because I think it's basically being treated as an environmental issue, and it's not an environmental issue. It's it's a it's an issue of. Um, you know, human survival, and uh, and it's going to become that um, very quickly. Um, and, and 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 in some parts of Australia, you know, for example, with you know heat records getting smashed or you know drought biting, uh, it is it is a very clear and present um, you know danger to human health already. Yeah. Well, look on this radio program for the last ten years, we've covered you know. A different story, really, that more local story that you're talking about, not really the victims but the campaigners and the people who are trying to stop something like at Gloucester, you know, stopping gas in Gloucester, and they managed to do that and uh, various, all the different campaigns that are going on around the country because people say, oh, no one's doing anything, but really there's a lot going on. This is cluster. There is a lot going on. Yeah, and I feel that that, I would like to see much more of that in the media and I was very happy to see there was a new group called Cover Climate um, news now, CCNN, yeah, yeah, yeah. Columbia School of Journalism, and I think that there was a um, also at the an emergency summit we were at there. There was a journalist's declaration there, but I'd like to see more continuous programs on TV and radio and in the in the print media 
not just showcasing exciting new frontiers of science, you know, great, great, you know, things for the future, but exploring those front lines that I've said, like communities who are installing renewable energy or Aboriginal land management. You know, there was one on Q&A, one guy, he just said, look, just put us in the driving seat. And it was such a pointed thing. And I thought, yes, we need to hear from the people who know what to do. And also there's emergency behaviour changes we're now seeing with the pandemic and people there's less flying going on, less buying. And that's, as you say, all good, even though the connections and the community-mindedness has got to be maintained and perhaps people will do that in their own ways. Somehow they will not lose that because the community is the most important thing to keep us keep our hearts up. But it needs to be more than a one-off article here and there. And I'd like to know, what do you see? You know, how, if you could... Rejig the media, or if you know, how how would you like to see it differently? Would you like to see a continuous flow of things in every sector? Oh well, I think there's no lack of coverage. It's really just the, um, it's just the nature of the coverage that's the problem. Uh, you know, the the problem is that the coverage is focused very often on the you know um, political um, debate, um, and the political debate is way behind the community debate or even the debate in industry. So um, so I, I think that, you know, the politics have been dysfunctional and so dysfunctional for so long that in this book I've decided let's not, you know, even go there. Um, really, it's, it's a cut-through exercise. So Body Count is really looking at, it's not looking at what we need to do um, because actually, really, we know what we need to do. Um, you know, it's not that complicated. You know, the switch to renewables um, uh, is, you know, sort of underway, um, and and uh, logic is, you know, um, compelling. And there are other books on it, you know, already. So, for example, Ross Garner, who I mentioned earlier, has just laid out a prescription uh, for how Australia could become a, you know, a, a renewable energy superpower. And I'm sure you've. Um, spoken about that in the past. But, well, Beyond Zero but, Emissions does that all the time. We publish research correct. papers on all of that, on transport, high-speed yes, rail, right. farming, all of it. But what's not aware, what people aren't aware of is that it's killing Australians now. Yeah. And they have names and they died in particular places and their stories are compelling and, uh, and those stories are not being told. Um, uh, you know, because journalists, for example, will... You know, and it was striking um, at the time of the Black Saturday, you know, right when Beyond Zero was launching, um, at the time of the Black Saturday fires, that the Royal Commission did not look um, closely at climate change. We just had Bernard Teague the other day, the Commissioner, go on to, you know, ABC Radio National and, and say, well, we didn't spend much time on climate change because all the scientists were agreed about it. Uh, you know, it was, so it became a side issue. Well, that's, that's astonishing. Yeah. You know, so and it was seen as you know, often, it's often seen as politically opportunistic uh, to go start talking about climate change in the wake of a disaster. And I think the summer we've just had uh, is the first time that that taboo has been broken, completely shattered. And you have had victims themselves talking and communities on the ground talking about climate change as the disaster unfolded and saying, "This is what's this is, you know, um, this is climate change, and we know it. And uh, what are you doing about it?" That's right. And uh, and you know that anger has been palpable all through that um, all through that black summer that we just had. Uh, but of course, I didn't know that when I started writing on this book. Um, you know, started researching, uh, and 
And, yeah, it seemed to me that, well, I would try to go and talk to people, for example, in Kinglake about climate. And what did I find? That there's still a reluctance to talk about it. There's still a lot of division and disagreement about whether it was a climate disaster or not. And um, and it's a debate that, you know, according to locals there, they, they haven't had yet. Uh, and, you know, because it's incredibly sensitive and it's tied up with the death of so many people in, that, in such a tragic disaster. But I know that there's enough people um, who, who believe that, you know, believed at the time and believe even more strongly now that, that it was a climate disaster and it needs, you know, that needs to be recognised. So, yeah. you know, uh, I've, I've tried to do my best of, you know, going, to, going out to these places and um, talking to people. And if they say no, well, of course, that's fine. You know, they say, I don't want to talk about climate change or my father or my wife or my daughter, my son's Mm. death has nothing to do with climate change. Well, that's fine. But, um, but some of them do. And, and, uh, I've been sort of lucky that they, that that they do. Yeah, I think that's what probably gives your book a lot broader validity than just a, you know, a narrow thing from people who all understand about climate change. As you say, there's confusion. Just one last thing. You said you interviewed a, a doctor in the Northern Territory. Um, what's the impact on the Northern Territory of, of the heat waves and other climate disasters? Yes, well, that was Dr Simon Crawley, the brother of uh, Ben, the famous painter, and I spoke to him. He worked for a long time at Catherine uh, and has now moved to Alice um, and is, uh, I think, working with the ANU. Uh, you know, the, he is concerned. He sees the impact of heat on communities um, every summer uh, and is concerned... Uh, you know, the, the projections from the Sea of Sahara, you know, much of the territory um, is going to be uninhabitable. And he, he is concerned that the, that the um, you know, the territory, you know, people are, are talking sort of around, around the topic but not, not, confront, not facing up to it. No. And, uh, yeah, honestly, it is, um, he, he says each year um, is hotter than the last and, it, and it's just getting, it's getting scary. And, uh, including to locals. And so, you know, particularly as someone who works with, um, indigenous communities, um, in a lot of these places, you know, he talked about the death of one, um, family that were driving, um, off to Yundamu and, uh, the car ran out of fuel. Um, that happens all the time. Um, but they died by the side of the road. Um, and he believes, you know, normally, um, 20 years ago, uh, they would have just been, you know, someone else would have come past and, you know, they just sat down and waited as, as is the normal thing to do um, when you break down out there and someone would have come past and got them. Uh, but in this case, you know, they died. Now, look, there's no proof. He's not yeah. claiming to no, have no. proof, but he's saying this is the kind of, this is the point of the book. Yeah. This is, it's not a, it's not a trying to get a clinical proof that climate change killed a particular individual. Of course, that's not possible but it's the risks that we're running Uh, that's the point of the book yep and the pattern of as you say changing temperatures the whole you know darwin will be 38 degrees all the time sort of thing listen we have to go now patty but just before can you tell the listeners when your book's going to be published what's it what uh, where they can get it yeah it's out in may june it'll be available everywhere um the, the title is body count how climate change is killing us um the publisher is simon and schuster and, uh, you know, I was booked to a whole bunch of um, writers' festivals, but they're all being cancelled as we speak. So, oh. um, 
so you just, I, I assume, um, we'll we'll just have to sell it at uh, bookstores, and um, and you know talk yeah. about it on radio. Radio's good. Okay, thank you very much, Paddy. That was really good. Thank you. That was Paddy Manning. Reefs worldwide are under threat from overfishing, industrial and agricultural runoff, and of course climate change. Today, the Great Barrier Reef is a boneyard in comparison to its former vivid glory. Yet Fiji are two decades into a reef conservation effort that draws on traditional indigenous knowledge and modern science. How are they doing? Very well, it seems. Last week I spoke with a man known as the Coral Gardener, who is an expert in both modern science and indigenous knowledge. That man is Dr. Austin Bowden-Kirby. The quality of the call was terrible. There was such a lag that the traditional interview method uh, didn't work, but that's okay because Dr. Austin is a great storyteller. I will explain each part. The first part coming up talks about how the traditional Fijian idea of a tumble, taboo, uh, a no-fish area was rediscovered. So here's the first part. Doctor, it's great to talk to you. Well, it's good to talk to you too, Kurt. And here it's early morning in Fiji and we finished feeding the chickens. I've lived in Fiji now for, uh, well, I first came here when I was 21. I had my 22nd birthday here. My father was working for the government. I was able to stay in Fijian villages. Um, and I had like a Fijian mother. Her name was Akosita. And I would stay with Akosita and Leka. When uh, it was time for going fishing, Akosita would go on the reef flat when it was low tide. And I'd follow her behind her with a bucket. And she would put the cassava on the fire, the wood fire, outside, the like outside kitchen. She would put the cassava on the pot, and we would go out, and she would catch octopus and things like that, mostly octopus and um, sometimes clams or shellfish. And then um, we'd go back, and the cassava was done, and she would put on the, the, the octopus, and we would cook that for lunch. And I – so that was in 1975. And uh, there were still lots of thatched borets in the in um, in the village, and it was in, you know people were living off the land, off the sea, and it was it was beautiful. And I, I I determined that that was this was my favorite place in the world, and I wanted to live here. And I, I do live here. I, we we moved back here. I came back several times, but we moved back here in 1999 um, with my wife and four kids, and we are citizens now in Fiji. So. Um, when in 1999, when I came back, I went to see Akosita, and I said, Are "We going fishing?" And she was getting pretty old. She says, "Well, I don't go fishing anymore." I said, "Why not? You're too old." She says, "No, there's nothing left. There's nothing left." And I said, "What do you mean?" She says, "There's nothing left." And so I went out on the reef flat, and there was nothing left. I mean, seriously, almost nothing. So um, we had seaweeds dominating. There weren't any corals left, hardly, and um, it was really changed and so um, I myself experienced the degradation and and um, and so um, I um, I was here to do a you know I was I was working on my PhD and I got a grant to come study in Fiji and um, and I was working with an NGO here was FSP Fiji Foundation for the Peace of the South Pacific um, which has now been changed to Partners in Community Development Fiji um, and so I was able to get a grant from New Zealand Aid, um, another grant from the Packard, and another grant from the MacArthur Foundation. And the Shangri-La Resort down there, um, they matched our grants and gave us free hotel rooms and meeting places and so forth and so on. So we were able to build up a big project, and we hired a team 
of experts to that were working with communities. And so uh, there was a guy from Scotland, Hugh Govan, who who came through um, an organization in, in England, and um, he was an expert at community processes as well. So he trained up local people on how to work with communities. It's called participatory learning um, and action, or PRA. And so we got workshops going at least. And basically the workshops were not to tell people what to do. They were a, dis a discovery process through consultation. The community would draw resource maps of what it was like in the old days. And so we had the old people get together in groups on these. We had seven villages we worked with. The old people would get together and draw pi pictures, maps of what it was like. And we had, we had our map. The oldest map was a, a map from before World War II or around the time of World War II. So they looked for markers or it was before the tsunami or it was before this. So um, they, they, they would look back in time with a marker and they could really actually map it. Oh, we used to go fishing here and we used to catch this. And it was so easy and this and that and the other. And that's before we sold our fish. You know, the road was gravel and slow and, and you know, it was, it was you know, we, we didn't go to Suva ever and, and we didn't have jobs and all that stuff. So they told all those stories back to the community. And so we had maps from the, from the 1940s. We had maps from the 1960s. We had maps from, from, the, from the 80s and then so forth. So we could see and, and, and the, the group of people of that age group would present to the community. And we'd see the um, degradation of the slow decline of the resources to the present. Back then in 1990, there was nothing left. And so then we got them into groups and said, well, what's the problem? Why do you think? And so the old people said, oh, it's those Chinese small-eyed nets. They, that's when those came in, suddenly everything went down. And there was another, oh, they're using, they, then they started using the fish poison, traditional fish poison called nduva, okay, the deris trifoliata leaves, uh, the vines grow on the shore. And then they said, also then we started selling them too, you know, because the, the road was paved and people, you know, things were coming up, the resorts were... A lot of new resorts being built. We started selling. People started catching the fish on the outside of the reef commercially and selling them uh, where the bigger fish are. And so all these little, all these things. And then, um, and they said also things with runoff and things, all different kinds of things came out and say. So they decided well, to make a management plan. So if these were the problems, what would be the solution? And so they came up with their solutions and they said, oh, there's one thing that our grandfathers used to do that we haven't been doing. And I said, what's that? He said, we would make tambu areas. What's a tambu area? A tambu area is where we will mark the reef with sticks and a coconut leaf tied on it. And that means that it's, you cannot catch anything on that reef and makes it sacred. It makes it so that if you do catch something on that reef, there will be very bad luck. Okay. You will, you will, something bad will happen to you. Not only will you violate the law of the village, but there will be some problem will happen to you. So they mark, so they used to mark the, the beginning and the ending of the tambu and, and everybody would honor it. So they said, this is what we did, but we haven't done this for a few generations. Our great grandfathers did this. My grandfather told me about it. Okay. And so maybe for 40, 50 years, it hadn't been done. So um, I, and they said, well, we could do that again. And I said, wow. And so everybody said, yes, they got excited. We're going to reestablish our culture. We asked, why did they stop doing that? They said, oh, now government says they own everything. Because queen, the crown, you know, when Fiji was seceded, the crown's basically everything from the Tai Tai mark down belongs to the government. And so we're waiting for the government to tell us what to do and to manage it. It's the government's responsibility. And they haven't been doing their job. So there are no, no fishing areas in Fiji at all at that point. And so they said, okay, 
we, and we asked the fisheries. The fisheries officers were there. We said, is this good? Can we do this? Is, there, is it against the law anything? They said, no, that you can, the, the people can make a management plan. They can do their own management. And if they make a tambu area, yes, it becomes uh, a no fishing area. And, um, and so we did it. So the communities decided and we created five no fishing areas in Fiji, just right there, boom, um, in one day. Um, five tambo areas, three on the reef and two in the mangroves were created. And so the people were all excited. They were making their speeches and weeping, just weeping in the meeting because they were so excited and happy that they were going to get their fish back. And it was amazing. Now, um, in Navuevo Village, Chief Honore told me, he said that there used to be a beach here in my grandfather's time. There was sand here, but it's all washed away. And all the coconut trees are falling in and everything. They said, uh, the university said this was sea level rise, and I said, I don't know about that because sea's not coming up very fast yet. So that was in 19, 1999, 2000, in the year 2000. And so they established a no-take area. And in the workshops, I talked about the ecology and about how the parrotfish are important in taking dead corals and eating the dead corals and grinding them down into sand and so that the white sandy beaches was really just parrotfish poo-poo, right, for the most part, right? And so that's bioerosion. So... Um, people were complaining in the workshop. They say places that used to be waist deep or chest deep at low tide were now ankle deep or bare in the in the in the air. They said, um, "What's happened? Why is our reef drying up at low tide?" And I thought maybe there was an earthquake or something that raised the land. They said, "No, no, it hadn't happened like that." And he said, "The rock, those dead stones just came in and and covered it all." So what it was that when a coral would die, it would instead of being eroded away by the parrotfish and sea urchins. So instead of erosion happening, another coral would sit on it and it would grow. And so all these dead stones, instead of turning into sand, were, were filling in all the gaps, filling all the tide pools in, and the tide pools had disappeared. So where are the fish supposed to live at low tide if the tide pools are all gone? And so I said, well, you know, you get your fish back and you're going to get your sand back on the beaches and you're going to get a deeper reef. And I said, ultimately, and I thought, maybe it'll take years or 20 years. But it'll happen. It took that long to fill in the, those tide pools. Maybe it'll take that long to get them back. So anyway, they established the no fish areas. And one time I went to visit Honore and he says, Honore said, Austin, they call me Taiohe. Taiohe, Ohe, come. I want to show you something. I said, where are we going? And he, he took me across the tram line. We walked to their beach and we stood on this beautiful sandy beach. And he says, you see this beach? And I said, yes. He said, I'm 65 years old and there has never been a beach here. This has always been stones. And just what you said in the workshop, that the sand would come back from the tambu, it has already come back. And I was shocked because it had been two years in the tambu. The tambu was there for two years, and already those stones were completely covered with sand. And I was really shocked. And now that beach has grown another 10 meters out. The, beach, the sand is going into the mangroves through the channel, and it's an amazing change. I thought it would take 20, 10 or 20 years, and it was starting at two years the stones were already covered. So everybody got excited and said, this is working. This is working. And I went out on the reef um, at, 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 and we would see um, the changes. We'd look at the changes. We had a Canadian volunteer, a young girl, um, who stayed in the Andua village. And so I said, she said, what can I do? And I said, okay, can you monitor with the kids? So she had these kids, 10 years, 14 years, 15, 16. All the kids, she said, okay, let's do some monitoring. And I said, I said okay, let's be five meters apart. We walk out from the shallow water at low tide all the way to the deep ocean, the same place Akosita and I used to go fishing. 
and we're going to do it in the no fishing area, so the open fishing area. Mm-hmm. So we walked, and, and they had clipboards that we gave them, and they marked every time an octopus, they would mark it, or an octopus hole, and they were marking any fish they saw that ran away. They were marking clams, giant clams, uh, trochus shells, spider conchs, uh, cowrie shells, anything that they could see, uh, sea urchins, which are very important in the diet. And they recorded the inside the tambu and outside the tambu. And the results were striking. I was shocked because it went the opposite on some things. While the sea urchins were so abundant, we couldn't even walk. It was so abundant. It was crazy. And they were cleaning off all the dead stones. They were making all the stones pink because of the coral analogy, even though the corals were dead. So they were opening up places where baby corals could settle, right? And that was just so abundant. It was crazy. And the octopus were so abundant. It was just absolutely unbelievable. They were even sitting on the rocks in the daylight. They're usually hiding, right? They were even sitting there. You could see them. And the one thing we... The, the group of animals that was gone were the mollusks. All the clams were gone, all the shells. And, and so we realized that the tambu area, the parrotfish were there, everything was you know working, the urchins were there, but the seashells were gone because the octopus had be- and the crabs and the lobsters were gone because the octopus had become overabundant. And this is why you need to monitor your no-fishing area. We've seen this before. So there's so intensive, um, there's such good habitat for octopus there and there's an intensive fishing pressure by the women at low tide. When you take that fishing pressure away, the octopus surged and were so abundant that they damaged the mollusks. And this, I have it in, you know, just reports, but it's never been published. Okay, and so when you make a no fishing area, the pendulum will swing backwards in a different direction. And that's why we have to monitor. So you need, you can, you can actually use humans to keep it in balance. So, um, but the people got the idea. But the, the abundance of the resources were back, and people were encouraged. They did mangrove planting. They did um, upland planting, erosion control, um, rubbish control. They used to throw their rubbish in the ocean, okay, at high tide. That was their rubbish disposal. And it would all go down and, and go down to Dubu Bay right at the Shangri-La. And so um, we, we negotiated, and the Shangri-La started picking up the rubbish, and there was rubbish collection. So we, we solved the rubbish problems. We planted thousands of coconut trees in the villages, short ones that wouldn't fall on people's heads in the villages and tall ones other places. So we worked with agriculture, we worked with fisheries, we worked with all the government, and the government was very happy with the project, and, um, and it spread, it started to spread down the coast and up the coast. And now there are over 300 no fishing areas in Fiji, and it all started in the year 2000 in the Tekina, the district of, of Duvu. So uh, we, um, we caused a big change but it spread from Fijian to Fijian. It wasn't driven by donors. It wasn't driven by outsiders. It, it's a good idea, and it can spread on its own. In the next part, Dr. Austin talks about the threats to the reefs in Fiji. Dollars, whatever. I think I think the minimum they can give is seven fifty. But but anyway, um, so we have raised about uh, enough money to have projects. Now we have sites in Tuvalu. We have sites in Christmas Island on uh, Kiribati. We have now sites in Samoa that was actually funded by the UN. Thank you, UN, for funding the first sites in um, in Samoa. We have sites in Moorea with the Coral Gardeners, this group of surfers, young people who've come together to save the world. It's called the Coral Gardeners. It's fantastic, and um, it's being funded by tourism involvement. And in Moorea, I've raised enough money through Global Giving to now go back there, hopefully in July, and give them another ecological workshop and get them, you know, tracked in the right way. And... Um, in Vanuatu, I hope to be there, and in Solomon's, I hope to go there, hopefully in 2021, to try to follow up with that. But 
So we're trying to create a strategy that's linked, a strategy that shares knowledge, a strategy that that um, pushes this forward. And I'm calling this the Reefs of Hope strategy. So Reefs of Hope. So we've got to have hope for the future. And, and if reefs are the most endangered uh, ecosystem on the planet, they really are. Coral reefs and the tundra areas, the North Pole. So the North Pole and the coral reefs are tied in two ways. One is one is that the North Pole melting is causing the sea level rise, right? And the other is the coral reefs are bleaching and dying from hot water. And I, I believe that the Earth is like the Gaia hypothesis. The coral reefs are in trouble. The Arctic is melting to give them relief in a way. So it's like one thing happens and another thing happens to balance it. So those melting um, ices are raising the sea level, which is going to help our reefs, but not help Tuvalu and Kiribati because those nations might just be erased. Yeah. So... Australia, leave that coal in the ground, please. Please, please leave it in the ground. You don't have the right to sell your future and your generation's future. You don't have that right. In the next segment, Dr. Austin talks about a project that he's working on to restore health to the reefs in Fiji. There's no government support at this point. So what we're doing is this. We do have a loophole in the law. There's one law that we can establish a permanent marine park. That's in the law. It can be established by the community. And the, the parliament will draft it as law. And that is a permanent no-take area. It is law. It never gets opened again. Okay. Now, we're going to establish the – the community wants to establish the entire Ngolingoli, their entire no-fishing – their entire – sorry, their entire customary waters as a marine park. We're going to use the Great Barrier Reef as our model. We're going to say this is the area where only you can get food for your family. That's called the Ikanakana. The Ikanakana is all near the villages. No one can sell anything from those reefs. No one can harvest there without permission, and only it goes for your kitchen. And then here is the Tambu's areas that are permanent, and we're going to put them around the resorts. We're going to ask the resorts to hire a fish warden that we train. Government will help train fish wardens so that all the permanent no fishing areas have a police force right there. Okay? We're going to make it in the law bylaws that boats can be seized. Because it's, it, it's, the government is going to make this a law, and the parliament will make it a law, and, they, and we can do it, then it'll, it, we can seize boats, we can seize vessels, and it will stand up in court. So we want to put 30% or 40% as permanent no-fishing area, and it could be a tourism use zone. And then we will, if we have any reef that they want for commercial purposes, they can manage that too. The, the chiefs are now discussing what it would be, but they want to put it into law, this multi-purpose zoned marine park, modeled after the Great Barrier Reef. Thank you very much for that. Okay, and we want to then charge a fee, and every resort would charge a fee, not so much, $5 a, a guest family or whatever for their stay or whatever, and that would generate funds to monitor and to um, to develop and maybe to fund the coral work and staff of the Marine Park. And so then also a lot of that money does have to go to the community development plans. They want to have a their health center, another classrooms of the school. They want to make a, a, a sustainable wharf. They want to they want to do something for replanting the the hills with trees. Whatever environmental pro projects or community development projects they want, that extra money would go to those projects and not into the pockets of any corrupt chiefs, right? And not into the and so if the government says, oh, we're giving permission for this seventh heaven to come here and put a pontoon on your reef, the marine park would say, no. Where's your EIA? And they would hold government to account to their own laws and say, where's your EIA? No, we're not giving permission. And so if you wanted to hear, yes, the communities talked, there's a place for it, and it's over here. 
it's going to be down current of all our, our of, of all our most important waters. It won't be a jeopardy. If it does come loose in a hot cyclone, it's not going to hit an island. It'll go to Vanuatu or somewhere. <laughs> so, 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 um, so we have a solution right now we're developing, and I have a big important meeting on Tuesday. We've already been to three meetings, and the community is behind getting a permanent solution to this Ngolingoli problem. Now, if we can make it work, the, the, the reason the government should support this is because if we can get this to work, it will solve this problem of coups in Fiji. There will be no more coups here because that's the underpinning of the coups is the people don't feel satisfied because the tourism industry is making all these millions of dollars, billions of dollars for all these Europeans who own these resorts. And the communities are practically slaves in the resorts, okay, as far as how much they're making. But basically, they would like to have a, an equitable share of the tourism industry. So what we want to do is involve the we want to train young people to be tour guides for the reef, for the marine park. We want to have fish wardens who will be the guardians of there so they have jobs. We want every resort to take on one or two coral gardeners to take care of the reef and to be growing the super corals and to restore the reef. We have this whole idea of how we can enrich the community in ways that are multi-generational enrich enrichment by restoring the resources, making this little reef in Malolo, in the Mamanuda Islands, making these reefs the future. Um, it's, it's like the, the, the leader for the future of wor a world under climate change in a warmer world. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, thank you uh, very much, Kurt. Thank you so and, much. Um, That's all we have time for today. I would just like to take a moment to thank BZE CEO Vanessa Petrie, who is moving onward and upward after three years at BZE. Vanessa helped me with many projects I've been working on, and she will be sorely missed. Thank you to all the listeners out there. Please stay healthy and stay safe. Um, thank you to our guests, Patty Manning and Dr. Austin Bowden-Kirby. Thank you to Viv for that interview with Patty and to Andy. Hello, Babette. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions radio program, and you are listening to 3CR. <music> should be talking, reacting to promises heard. If we just wait, be patient for the trickle down to work. Well, I don't see it. I'm skeptical of these empty words. They cannot save us, that's for sure. Wait for heaven to answer our call We think the market itself can do it all Logic of profit in this climate will be our downfall Not paying for the damage that we cause This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world This changes everything Don't you see This changes the world Changes the world 
the climate's changing. We know this. The science is now clear. Heat waves becoming more dangerous than they've been before. We must not wait to confront this recklessness of power when they claim it's a conspiracy of fools. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. Changes the world. Changes our world. Changes our world. Changes our world. This changes everything, don't you see? It changes our world. This changes everything, don't you see? It changes our world. Sometimes that's just how it goes. Three, two, one, get out before it blows. 